We stand in the presence of God's Word. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, and they said, we'll go with you. But that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. He said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered, No. He said to them, Cast your net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. He said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. In fact, John uses this very expression nine times that Jesus revealed himself. But three of those times are particularly significant, significant enough that this particular passage concludes this was the third time. There's special significance in the Bible to doing anything for the the third time. In fact, we know that before the time of Moses, all the man had to do to get rid of his wife was to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. She was to pack up and leave. Moses changed that. Jesus changed it even further. But that was the law before Moses uh, changed that law. Three times, three times they've had opportunity to see the resurrected Christ. Four things I've underlined here. Number one is that John makes great use of this word, Jesus revealed himself. And he revealed himself in this way. Do you remember when we had the first rabbi in our Barton Clinton Gordy series? When I came here, I discovered that you had never had a rabbi preach uh, in the series. So I talked with the committee after I felt I knew them the first few years and asked, how about having a rabbi? Really, they asked. I said, yes, if you've never heard a great rabbi preach, you've missed something very special. They agreed to let me find uh, a, a rabbi who would come and speak to them. I called my friend, uh, Rabbi Charles Sherman, and said, Charles, I need the name of the best preaching rabbi in America. Uh, the one whom I had loved uh, so much, heard uh, teach and preach at Perkins School of Theology, uh, was retired by that time. He recommended Rabbi, Charles, uh, uh, rabbi Herman Shalman from Chicago, and he came. Now, I remember all four of his presentations because they were so outstanding, and you remember they were outstanding because in just a few years the committee said, could we have another rabbi? And we had one. And a few years they said, could we have another rabbi? And I said, yes. And after, could we have another one? And we've had four now in our series, and they've all been terrific. But I remember very clearly Rabbi Shalman's four presentations. They were really wonderful. And the first one was the God of Sinai. The God of Sinai. He said, we Jews begin our first scroll with, in the beginning, God. We believe that. In the beginning, God. 
There was darkness until God spoke, and then there was light. There was chaos until God spoke, and then there was order. In the beginning, God. Now, he said, scientists are still helping us understand just how God got all of this universe created. We're still debating about whether it's 14 billion years old or 16 or 17 billion, but we're learning more and more about that all the time. We begin, in the beginning, God. But then, he said, we Jews believe God chose to start revealing himself to us. And we believe the most significant revelations we had came in the time of Moses. It was on a mountain in the desert that Moses saw a bush on fire, but not being consumed by the fire. Went up a little bit closer and heard a voice. Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And then this voice told Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. I've heard the cries of my people. They've been slaves for 400 years. I'm ready to do something about that. You know the ways of Pharaoh. You tell Pharaoh, I've come to get my people. Moses said, I do know Pharaoh. He's not listening to me. And God said, yes, he will, because I will visit plague upon plague upon plague upon him until he does listen to you. It took 10 of them, as you recall, but Pharaoh finally said, go. The rabbi said, We were led by a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night until we got back to that mountain in the desert where Moses went up and received from the voice of God the Ten Commandments. This is a God who chooses to reveal himself. And we Gentiles believe that God has revealed himself most clearly of all in Mary's child Jesus grew up to be a teacher, a preacher, a healer, a worker of miracles, who was crucified at Jerusalem, who really did die, who was buried and had a great stone rolled over his tomb, only to be raised from the dead on Sunday morning. This is a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us. We, we read about and love reading about God's revelations to the people of Israel, and we love reading about God's revealing himself to us Gentile Christians as well. I've been telling you about uh, Dr. John Buchanan. He retired January 31 from Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, one of the really beautiful churches in our country, one of the great churches in our country. So Dr. Buchanan, like Bishop Woody White, whom I quoted last Sunday morning, said, Nobody asked me to preach on Easter Sunday. I've preached on Easter Sunday, he said, every every Easter for nearly 50 years. I'm retired. Nobody asked me to preach on Easter. So he said, I'm going to write a little bit of a good Easter sermon right here in the Christian Century magazine. And this is what he said. After three years, the disciples had come to believe the things Jesus was telling them. The meek shall inherit the earth. The peacemakers shall see God. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And then the Roman hammer came down on Jesus. They heard whip against flesh. They heard hammer against nail. 
they ran to that upper room and bolted every door they had in fear that the same would come to them. But Sunday morning, when the women went to the tomb, the great stone was rolled away. They saw these dazzlingly white figures who said, Why are you looking for the dead? The living among the dead, he is not here. He has been raised. They went running back to the upper room and told the disciples. Two, Peter and John, ran to the tomb, looked in for themselves. And later that same evening, Jesus appeared to them in that upper room. And Dr. Buchanan says, from that moment, when they were convinced the resurrection was real, they believed again, the meek shall inherit the earth. The peacemakers shall see God. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Be God's witness in the world. Nothing could turn them back. Nothing ever again. He had revealed himself to them. Number two, they're up at the lake. John is writing long time after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing primarily to Gentiles who don't know the geography of Israel. And he calls it by the name of the predominant town on the banks there. A town founded in the year 25 while Jesus was a young adult. Named for the Caesar at that time, Tiberius. And of all the little villages around the lake, the Bible says there were more than 10 Decapolis, 10 little towns. They all disappeared over time, but not Tiberias. It is a sister city of Tulsa, Oklahoma to this day. It is a sister city to us. So it's called here the Sea of, of, of Tiberias. It's the same lake we talked about where Simon had fished so many times before. And he's gone back to his old occupation. I think I'll go fishing. And we're told by the writer here there were at least six with him, he calls them, six with him, so the seven of them decided they'll go fishing, and they didn't catch anything. Now, Dr. Raymond Brown taught the studies that came out of the community of John. We have a gospel. We have three letters. We have the revelation. Not necessarily written by the same person, but coming out of the same community that formed around, we believe, the disciple John. Probably in modern-day, what is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, probably near what we know as the ancient city of, of Ephesus. Uh, so this is the place where this, where this is happening. Uh, this writer is trying to describe what the lake is like, what it's all about. But Dr. Raymond Brown says, if you read through all four Gospels, you will find that every time the disciples go fishing, if Jesus is not there telling them what to do, they catch nothing. All four Gospels, every time they go fishing, they catch nothing. These are people who fish for a living. They catch nothing. So obviously the Gospel writers are trying to make a point. If you don't have the help of Jesus, you're failing. If you're not having in your life the guidance and direction of Jesus, you're failing. Last May... Gail and I took our vacation for the year. We went to New York City, spent more time there than we had ever spent in one time ever before. Um, we saw 
the great museums of New York City. We saw a couple of New York Yankee baseball games. Uh, we saw a couple of plays. We had a wonderful time. But we had never been to the site of the 9-11 Twin Towers. We'd been there when they were up. We'd never been there since they were down and gone. Every time we came to a church in New York City, we stopped and went inside. First of all, I love to see churches, but we had Paul Stott on our hearts. The Reverend Paul Stott was having a really difficult time with his lymphoma last May, and he was on our hearts. And so every time we came to a church, we went inside, went down to the altar, lit a candle, said a prayer for Paul. He was on our hearts. One of the churches we went to was St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church. St. Peter's featured a cross. You've seen pictures of it, even if you haven't been there. This cross was made of two of the I-beams in one of the Twin Towers that was so melted and pushed down by the falling building that these two I-beams were scrunched around into the form of a cross. And someone saw this as all the debris was being cleared and took it to St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church where it had been on display ever since, 10 years. Now, the folks at St. Peter's had been told, this is just yours for a time. When we get the permanent new museum completed, we're going to come get the cross and move it over there. They understood that. But during this 10 years, thousands of people had gone to St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church to see this cross. Not only that, but the folks at St. Peter's had put up some stick boards so that people could write little notes, almost like going to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, put a prayer inside the cracks between the stones. And so people had been putting notes up. Some of them were angry at all the destruction and the loss of life in 9-11. And some of them were tear-stained. Some of them were about my mother or my father, my brother who died in one of those towers, all kinds. Well, St. Peter's, knowing that they were going to lose this cross at some point, commissioned a new one to take its place. They commissioned an artist way out on the West Coast, and he decided to make a cross tall, about 10 feet tall, out of stainless steel that could be burnished to you until you could see yourself in it. It was mirror-like. And it's not just a plain cross. It's twisted, this stainless steel, twisted to make the cross members. And all those notes that had been collected were put inside that cross. And the artist said, as it was delivered to St. Peter just recently, we put all those little notes inside that cross. Some angry, some painful, some hopeful, all of them. And then polish this cross to the point that if you stand one place, your face is reflected in one of the folds of this beautiful stainless steel. And if you move a little, you no longer see yourself in that one, but you see yourself in another part of it, and another part of it, and another part of it. And the artist said the point is... Bring to the cross whatever prayer you have. If you're angry, if you feel you haven't been dealt with fairly, 
somebody you love hasn't been dealt with fairly, bring it. You're hurting, you're in pain, bring it. You have a hope, hope and a promise, bring it. And find yourself at that cross and see where this one is telling you to throw your net. Number three, that's what he tells them. Fish on the right side. Fish on the right side. And every time Jesus tells them how to fish in the four gospels, they catch fish every time. Wouldn't this seem rather simple to us now that if we do what God says, things work out much better and if we violate what he said, things really get all messed up. I mean, the Ten Commandments still are valid. There are four wonderful things we're supposed to do and six things we're not supposed to do. And if we don't do the good and we do the bad, it really does mess up our families, really does mess up our neighborhoods, really does mess up our communities. It will. You do what he said things work out better. You don't do what he says and things work out miserably. I was reading an article in Newsweek magazine the other night about the wedding, last year's wedding, Prince William and Catherine Middleton. And this was written by a Brit, a young woman in England writing for Newsweek magazine. And she was comparing, of course, Catherine with Lady Diana. And she had said it really isn't a fair comparison because... When Diana married Prince Charles, she was a high school graduate, barely 19. And Catherine was a college graduate, 30 years old, who had already established herself as a very capable young professional woman. They're very different people. Uh, Diana had royal blood. Catherine is a commoner. No royal blood at all, not a whisper. And yet this writer was saying how well Catherine has done her first year. I've seen pictures of her pushing a cart through a supermarket. I've seen pictures of her shopping for her own shoes in a department store. They had pictures recently. She was in an outing with the Queen and Prince Charles's wife, Camilla. Catherine was the one everybody wanted to see. She's young and beautiful. She was standing back, and every time a photographer came, she slipped around more behind Camilla behind the queen. This woman in London wrote a line that unless you've watched the old British television shows, you wouldn't recognize. But Gail and I have sort of wound down our Sundays for years watching OETA late Sunday nights, and we've watched those British comedies. We can recite lines to each other from the... We've seen some of them half a dozen times at least. One of those series was called To the Manor Born. M-A-N-O-R. It was about a woman who lived on a beautiful estate in the British countryside. Husband died. She can no longer keep it up. It has to be sold. And she still believes the manor belongs to her. And it doesn't belong to her. And she doesn't like the guy that bought it. She wants her manor back. And so, but it's done in a humorous kind of way. She was to the manor born. Well, guess what this writer said about Catherine? She was to the manor, M-A-N-N-E-R, born. 
the manner by which she lives her life. She and Prince William have no maid. They have no butler. She cooks. They wash dishes. They vacuum their floors. They make their bed. The people love her because she realizes who is the queen, who will one day be king, and who she is. The scriptures are asking you and me, who do not believe in royal blood, to believe in the king of kings, the lord of lords. We were born for a certain manner. He told us, don't push to get to the head table. Wait on tables. Don't grab for all you can. You will lose it. If you focus on the other, you will gain it. Number four. One of the disciples is never named in John's gospel, and it's John. Scholars believe that the writer who wrote this gospel must have deeply loved this old fisherman who had come to Asia Minor, around whom a whole faith community grew up, parts of which would produce a gospel, some writer would produce three letters, some would, one would produce the revelation. From that faith community, he just loved John so much, he couldn't imagine that Jesus didn't love him best of all. And so he refers to him only one way throughout the gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And he always puts John right there in the center of things. Here they are approaching the shore. It's right as daylight. They don't recognize the person they see out there on the shore. Jesus asks them, do they have any fish? No, we haven't caught anything. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. Suddenly more fish than they can haul in. And the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Simon, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. When they got to the shore, there was a charcoal fire. We know about a charcoal fire. There was one just outside the home of Caiaphas that Friday morning when someone asked Simon, Weren't you one of his? No. Didn't you go with him? Never. Weren't you a disciple of this man? Never, he screamed. Now he's brought back to a charcoal fire. And just following this passage, Simon, do you love me? Yes, sir. Do you love me? Yes, sir. Do you love me? Really love me, Simon? John, John says, it's the Lord. And as he said, come and have breakfast with me, nobody dared ask, who is it? They all knew, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. One of the movies nominated this year for Best Foreign Film was called Monsieur Lesor. It's a French-Canadian uh, film about a young school teacher, sixth-grade school teacher, who's come out of Algeria, who as a boy grew up with all the bloodshed, hatred, violence, prejudice, bigotry that's been a part of Algeria's history. But he applies for a job in Canada, he has all the credentials that the job requires. He's hired. The students have no idea about his background. And he doesn't know theirs. His predecessor, one afternoon after class, was so despondent she hanged herself in their classroom. 
semester begins, he doesn't know they're hurt. They don't know his. Until into the semester, he requires a speech. Everybody write the most important thing that's happened to you the last six months. And some wrote about a trip. Some wrote about a, a holiday. And one girl wrote about the teacher who hanged herself. And suddenly he knows they're hurt. He knows they're hurt. And this wounded healer helps to heal the hearts of these sixth grade kids. And in giving so much of himself, they help heal his heart as well. John says, the one who was wounded and hanged on a tree wants to be your healer. Your healer. 